Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the New Book Network podcast. I'm Deidre Tyler. Today, we'll be talking to Tracy Larson, author of Answering Liberty's Call, Anna Stone's Daring Ride to Valley Forge. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. I wonder if you could start the interview by saying a few words about yourself and how you became interested in this project. Okay, great. Well, I always wanted to be a writer since I was a little girl, but um, life got in the way and I published my first book in um, 2012, about 10 years ago. And it was a nonfiction book that was based on family stories. So since then, it seems like the universe has been sending interesting family stories my way. And Anna Stone is my sixth great grandmother. So the protagonist of my of my story, it's based on a true story. Now, what's your connection to Anna Stone other than her being your great-grandmother? Okay, well, let's see. I, I've, of course, I had done genealogy research in the past, but I didn't really know about Anna's story until I was making a 50th anniversary booklet for my parents. And I was doing all the genealogy on both sides. And I thought, well, I'll include any interesting stories I happened to come across along the way. And I found this story about Anna Stone and her going to Valley Forge with supplies for her husband and brothers and ending up wrapped up in a conspiracy, um, trying to thwart the conspiracy that was afoot against General Washington. So I included that story in the booklet. And then I also learned that there was a Daughters of the American Revolution chapter named in her honor. So I switched my affiliation to that chapter so that now that's my home chapter. And I just felt a kinship with her and her story. And I thought, what a fun project, but I actually got started writing it because I was listening to a podcast one day while we were driving and the host said, we rarely see American history from a woman's point of view. And I thought, well, golly, I'm a writer. I should do something about that. And what story can I tell? And so of course the story of my grandmother jumped into my head and I thought, well, that's the perfect story. And really her voice came through loud and clear to me just from the beginning. And it was a joy to research and bring her story to life. 
She was fierce and determined. Yes, she was. What in her background encouraged her to travel by horseback alone? Well, um, it was in the part of Virginia where they lived at the time, it was very hilly and the roads were poor. So walking or riding horseback were faster means of conveyance than going in like a wagon or a carriage. So pretty much all the people that she knew grew up riding horses. And from what I've learned of my research of her was that she was used to riding good Virginia horses and she had her own saddle horse that was her pet. And so that was her, um, you know, it was her means of conveyance most of the time. And so when she decided to set off for Valley Forge, of course, the fastest way she could imagine to get there would be to just take Nellie and, and hit the road. Now tell us about Nellie and Anna's connection with that horse. Well, that was one of the most fun parts about writing the story. Um, I consulted with a friend who also writes historical fiction early in the process. Yeah. And so Anna sets off on her fine saddle horse, Nellie. And my friend said, remember, horses are not cars. Horses have personalities and fears and they get hungry and tired, just like people. And so make sure you make that horse into a character. And that was one of the most fun parts of the, uh, you know, of writing the book was forging that connection, you know, how that deep connection between a woman and her horse, her pet. But then also that pet gets her into trouble a couple of times and gets her out of trouble a couple of times. Um, and, and really one of the I decided to write the horse having a fear of river crossings, because when I was driving the same route that Anna traveled, I crossed the Susquehanna River in my car. And I looked across that mile long bridge and I thought, oh, Lordy, because I don't like crossing river bridges anyway. And I thought how scary that was just in the car. And I thought how terrifying it would have to be in the wintertime on a ferry. And then I thought, well, the horse would probably even be more frightened than the person. And that just kind of led to uh, developing Nellie's, um, you know, her quirks. Now, talk to us about the indentured servant time. Yes. Now, see, this is something that I came across in my research. Um, One of the things I've sought to know when I started writing this book was, why would Anna do this ridiculously dangerous thing? You know, I mean, if you think about it, Deidre, she's got three little kids at home. She's got a husband at the front. And, you know, there were 11,000 men at Valley Forge that winter and not everybody's wife showed up with a sack lunch, you know? So why would she do this crazy thing? Why would she go 200 miles when she couldn't be sure, sure of her own safety? There was every possibility that something terrible would happen to her and her family would just never know what happened to her. So she was risking everything to go on this journey. And so that was, you know, what I needed to know was why would she do this this thing? And the research that I did turned up that um, her father had died when she was nine years old. So I got a copy of his will inventory and saw that what he had left over when he died at the very young age of like 38 wasn't enough to sustain a family. And then I started thinking about, well, what would happen to the wife and the children of that man who died without leaving anything behind to support them? And the laws governing widows and orphans at the time said that an orphan's court, and there was an orphan's court in every colony in the United States at that time, the orphan's court would determine guardians for the children. 
and the guardians were to oversee the inheritance, um, look to the education of the sons, come up with dowries for the daughters out of the estate. Now, if you didn't have enough money to be an attractive ward for someone to take care of, you could be placed in an indenture or an apprenticeship against your mother's wishes. And this was because communities were small, tax bases were small, they just did not have the money to support the indigent. And the most important thing was that everybody be productive in society. And if that meant taking a little girl away from her mother and training her up to be a seamstress or a domestic servant or some other kind of thing, then that was what choice was made. And I don't know for certain that this happened to Anna, but I do know that she was aware of it. I know there were other people in her community that this happened to from reading the, uh, the minute books from the courts. And I think that she would have been fully aware that if her husband and her three brothers all perished at Valley Forge, she would not have anyone to advocate for her. And she would be at the mercy of the courts or her uncle. And so that's part of the fun of historical fiction is you take a nugget of information like that. Cause I mean, I had no idea that this was actually the case. And then your imagination goes and you think, oh my gosh, how horrible this could be for her. And where can I go with that? You know, so of course, putting her in an indenture as a child then gave me an opportunity to explore that and think what might have happened to children and teenagers who were put in that position. Now I want to back up a bit. I, sure. I was it was interesting how she met her husband, Benjamin. Tell us about that mm-hmm. a little bit. Wow. And so um, I had to just kind of go with where they were geographically and where I could track them. Um, I figured she had to have moved west to Fauquier County because she and her husband both lived there at the same time. Um, I was unable to find a marriage record for them because her husband was a Baptist. And at the time, Baptists were persecuted in the state, in the colony of Virginia. We think people came to America for religious freedom, but it was, um, results may vary. You know, certain colonies like Maryland and, and Pennsylvania had much more toleration than Virginia. And in Virginia, if you were not a member of the Anglican church, you still paid taxes to support the Anglican church and you still farmed the land set aside for the benefit of the parish priest. And if you wanted to marry with a Baptist preacher, the courthouse did not have to record your marriage. So I think Benjamin Stone was a rebel. Um, I've read some of his later writings from later in his life, and he was so smart and he was so passionate about what he did and his, his religious beliefs and his advancement of the Baptist faith as a minister and as a and as a missionary minister as well, because he traveled West after the revolution and planted churches as far West as central Ohio. Uh, he was still planting churches when he was in his eighties. So you got to imagine what this guy would have been like when he was in his twenties. And I think he would have been energetic and passionate and just the kind of guy that might've suited Anna. And so I had to create a swoon worthy hero for my protagonist and somebody that she would love so fiercely that she would put herself in danger to go save out of what I knew of him. And this is, again, the fun of doing historical fiction, because you find the facts about the people and then you say, okay, so what can I do to make him somebody that we, we would want to marry or somebody that we find a a role model or somebody that we love to hate. And what I saw was that he had um, an older brother that was very similar, very close in age. 
And so sometimes when boys are very close in age, you figure they, they beat the heck out of each other every day until somebody else from the outside comes in and threatens one of the boys. And then they, they take him on, they take the interloper on together. And I think that was kind of Thomas and Benjamin's relationship that I created for them was that they had some friction between them until they were threatened from the outside. And then they worked as a really good team. Now the yellow dress, yes. how significant was that? Well, it was a significant symbol in the course of the, um, of the novel because a women didn't marry in white gowns back then because it was just too hard to keep white clean. Um, white became popular in the 1830s when Queen Victoria chose it because she had some lace that she wanted to showcase on the gown in which she would marry. And she wanted her seamstresses to make her a white gown. Now, of course, she was the wealthiest and most powerful woman in the world at that time. So she could waste money on a white dress. But colonial brides in America would just wear their prettiest or their newest dress. And so the, the symbolism of the yellow dress was Anna's uncompromised virtue. I mean, it was far nicer than anything she would have had for herself as a, a young woman without means. And when she acquires it, she gets a really pretty dress, but it almost, com it almost comes at a price because she almost sacrifices her virtue while she's in her indenture, but she's able to escape, you know, some of the things that befell a lot of other young women where they were considered possessions in the household and you had no agency of your own. So, and also when you're writing historical fiction, to me, it's all about the clothes because I love to sew and I love to create beautiful things. And so I thought a lot about what I would want for Anna to wear, even though as a Baptist wife and a minister's wife, she probably would have dressed a lot like the Puritans did in plain clothes and, you know, somber colors and things like that. But I thought, doggone it, I wanted to get married in something pretty. So I had to invent a way for her to end up with a pretty gown. Now, she had a special skill, and that was healing. Mm -hmm. You wrote a chapter about that. Tell us about that. Yes. Um, looking for a vocation for Anna, because, you know, women in the 1700s, everybody was a cook. Everybody was a healer. Everybody was, you know, because you had to manage your household and take care of your family and sometimes your community. And I thought, what would be a skill that I could give Anna that would give her some agency of her own and also make it logical for her to set off for Valley Forge. And I thought, well, if she was skilled in herbal remedies and healing above and beyond the norm, you know, she was the person you called when you had a medical emergency, then it would make even more sense that she couldn't sit idly by and think, what if my brothers are sick? What if my husband is dying? I can't sit here and do nothing and just wait for word that they've died. I've got to go see if I can take care of things because what if her factually from her story said that she was not the kind of person who sat around and let others take care of her. She was the one who went into action and took care of things. So of course, um, it was really fun to research the folk medicine. My sister is a physician. And so I consulted with her um, a lot. And I am not a physician and I am not the, the girl that you call when somebody's bleeding. <laughs> but, but it was really fun to learn about the herbal remedies and think about you know, what it would be like to make your own medicines and things like that. Um, so yeah, I, I wanted to give Anna something that she was as passionate about as Benjamin was about his religious faith. Now, tell us about the typhoid fever during that time period. What did mm -hmm. you learn about that? Well, let's see. I learned that typhoid 
it was it was communicated by um, contaminated water. And since people didn't really understand germs until the 1850s, you know, washing one's hands, we're, we've just come out of the pandemic and we've spent the last two years being told, wash your hands, cover your cough, all, all these things we can do to avoid spreading germs. And we've been, you know, kind of disparaging people who seem clueless about the ways that we can keep from getting each other sick. Well, imagine if nobody understood how to keep from getting each other sick. Um, imagine if, you know, the squalor of living in 11,000 people and just, you know, peeing wherever you felt like it and the, you know, your, your waste going into the water supply so that other people drink water that's contaminated. This is how easy it is to spread typhoid. But I also, in my research, I looked into what were the things that threatened the colonial people the most. And of course, smallpox was a constant fear. Um, typhoid just kind of snuck up on you and it had a lot of symptoms so it could be misdiagnosed. And, and the, the detail about your sweat smelling like a yeasty smell, like baking bread, was a, a, fa was a fascinating and visceral kind of detail that, that I clung on to. And I thought, you know, as, as Anna's being mentored by Rhoda, the, the older enslaved woman who teaches her about herbal remedies and, and healing. And she, she says, you know, you got to be clean and you've got to remember that typhoid can fool you, but it can catch you too. So you've got to know the symptoms and you've got to stay clean. And so this was, it kind of was reflective of what we were going through when I was writing the book. You know, Absolutely. Here. Yeah. How did Anna learn about what the situation in Valley Forge? Okay, the situation in Valley Forge, she would have um, had access to the Virginia Gazette. Um, it, you can find contemporary copies of the Virginia Gazette newspaper from the 1770s online. And I was reading through some of the articles, but um, you know, is it one of the early chapters that, you know, I'm dying to know what's going on. Benjamin's not writing home as much as I want him to. My brothers aren't writing to me. Everything I get in the newspaper is at least a month old. Uh, and she's, you know, she's dying from news from the front, just as we all would be if we had loved ones that were away at war or away in any situation where they were in harm's way. But in the story, um, Benjamin writes her a letter and he always tries to bolster her spirits by telling her that things aren't nearly as bad as she worries that they are. But in this letter, he says a few things that really give her pause because if he's going to say, you know, your brothers are sick and, and they don't seem to be getting any better. And, you know, I, I, I don't have a warm coat anymore. I'm, I'm a sergeant now, but I, I don't have a coat because my coat wore out, you know, and things like that. And it's just kind of giving her little hints as to just how bad things were. And I've read a lot of letters that were written by men at Valley Forge and sent home that were preserved. And there, you can find things like that at the Library of Congress website. And it's very interesting to read. You know, they, they say, remember me to the folks at home and be sure to kiss the children and tell me what's going on at home and, and tell me stories because I miss you guys. And it's, it's just like, it, things haven't changed. People still miss home when they're away in situations like this. And, and so that would have been how Anna and Benjamin would have communicated, but it would have been sporadic. It would have been unreliable. Now on the road, while she's mm -hmm. traveling, she has a lot of messages that are given to her and a lot of things that happen. Tell us mm -hmm. about the political message that was given to her. Okay. So of 
course, Anna's, um, the true story that I, I used for my basis of my story, um, it doesn't say a whole lot about what happened to her before she got that secret message bound for General Washington. And so I spent some time researching what was going on in politically. What would, what would she have faced on the road? What kind of attitudes would she have had? Because, you know, I think we may have all experienced maybe going on a driving vacation, stopping for lunch at a local diner, and you walk in and you just feel like, yeah, these aren't my people, I don't belong here. And we also know of the plight of women in certain societies where they simply can't ride a bus after dark by themselves without fear of being assaulted or um, their, their station in life being misconstrued, you know, like, oh, are you a prostitute? And, and that was kind of how it was for American women in the colonial era, it was dangerous to travel by yourself. It was, you were considered the property of your husband or your father. And so, you know, oh, well, lost, now it's found. And so people, you know, women didn't have the agency that they have now. They didn't expect the respect that we expect now. And so the, the travel, okay, so the travel in and of itself, I considered her first few days on the road a learning experience where she thought, I've got this. And then at the end of every day, she's like, oh, gee, that was terrible. It can't get any worse than that. And it just keeps getting worse and worse. But she learns from what she experiences. And then when she does reach the point where Congressman says, this message has to get to General Washington, it's, you know, all my couriers are being watched you're the most likely person to carry it. Will you do it? She's already seen something of political backstabbing and she's seen subterfuge and she's seen people aren't as always as scrupulous and as nice as she would want them to be. And then she starts running ahead of, okay, well, there's this message. There's a problem. General Washington and her husband keeps writing and saying, General Washington is he's the bomb diggity, you know, he, he's the man, we all follow him. We all believe in him. We could get rid of any other general except for him because that's how the enlisted men generally felt about Washington. And so she, of course, allies with Washington in her, in her heart as well. And the thought that somebody would be plotting against him, that had to be terrifying. And then the ramifications of, well, what if, what if the camp is thrown into disarray? What if the British are in on it? What if they attack the camp when nobody's looking? And what if my husband is killed in that way? So of course, this, this elevates her panic to a whole new level. So she's got to head out and get this message to its destination. But because she's been on the road for almost a week at this point, and she's been through the ringer a couple of times, she's got some skills now. And she's got the skills that she needs when that man accosts her and said, by the way, the congressman's changed his mind and you can just give that letter back to me. I'll take it back to him. And she knows that he's not telling the truth and she knows that it's up to her now. And I think that was a really powerful part of the true story. Very powerful. What did Washington do for Anna and Benjamin in this story? Um, well, this was fun too, because when I called Valley Forge and I thought, okay, so and again, Deidre, you know, I'm, I'm writing a romantic story here too. And I think she hasn't seen her husband for a year and a half. Oh, I can write a wonderful reunion when they, when she gets to Valley Forge eventually. And then I call Valley Forge and I'm talking to one of the historians there. And I was like, so where did visitors stay? And she said, oh, well, she'd just be in the hut with her husband and the other 11 men. And I thought, oh, gee, you know, so there goes my romantic uh, reunion thing. But, but Washington, Washington played everything so close to the vest. Um, he did not, he, he just didn't 
talk a whole lot. He let Alexander Hamilton do most of his talking for him. And so that was how I set up the, the relationship there. But he would have been extremely guarded about getting a message from an unvetted source. You know, I mean, think about it. Some strange woman rides into camp and says, I have this message for you. You must take it right away. You must act on it. It, it certainly would have been, there would have been a, a procedure to follow to vet what she had given him. And I think if it really came from the source that he trusted, um, then it would have, you know, it would have been acted upon. And I think this probably wasn't the only message that was going back and forth between New York, Pennsylvania and General Washington, because the conspiracy against him was heating up. And the crazy thing about this conspiracy was that it was coming from within Congress and within the Board of War itself. And the Board of War was sworn to protect and sustain and outfit the army and support the commander in chief. But at this point in the war, the people who were running it were detractors of Washington and they were trying to figure out ways to get rid of him. And it goes to Washington's um, his patience that he didn't freak out at all these awful things that were being said about him, all the, um, you know, the, the steps that were being taken to slowly erode his power so that the board of war was over him rather than assisting him. And also that the, the president of the board of war was the one who wanted his job. And so it was, it was interesting to see how different factions were just trying to chip away at Washington's power because they didn't think that he was going to bring the war to a speedy enough end. But the tricky part was that the guy that wanted his job didn't really think we could win the war in the first place. And he would not have hesitated to surrender if asked to. And that would have made a whole nother ending to the story. And we would be still be British subjects. So very interesting. It really was. Now, you talked about the foods that the people prepared mm -hmm. during this time period. Tell the audience a little about that. Wow. You know, in America, things were good. Um, we had resources. We had huge amounts of land. We had, you know, game deer, bear, things that people ate. Um, and we also had the most updated farming techniques. And so people were generally um, better, were taller, they had better teeth, they were, you know, they were raising good, hardy people here. And they had a good variety of food. And I think that some of the folks that came from Europe and fought on either side were astounded at the bounty here in America. Um, and so, but in Virginia, I looked into what menus in Virginia would be like, and it was, um, you know, it was a lot of, a lot of pork a lot of ham, a lot of bacon. <laughs> it, apparently raising pigs was easy and, and that was your staple meat. But um, there, most families raised tobacco as a cash crop and they raised enough corn and enough wheat for their own purposes. Um, General Washington, George Washington, before he went at his own farm at Mount Vernon, he was one of the first um, people in Virginia to grow enough wheat that it became an export crop for him rather than just enough to feed the people on his, his particular land. So I would say that the people had a great deal of bounty, but the problem at Valley Forge was the supply chain interruptions. It's something else we all know all about, right? So um, we're facing a worldwide paper shortage right now, which is keeping me from getting some stuff done at work, which is crazy. But so imagine 
you have plenty of flour or you have plenty of salted meat, but you don't have any way to get it to Valley Forge. So it sits on the side of a riverbank and rots because there's no way to get it there. And that was what happened when the quartermaster of the Continental Army walked away from his post in October and said, can't do this anymore. And that led into the people having not enough to eat at Valley Forge. Now, what is the message you would like your reader to receive once they finish reading your book? Wow. Um, I would like my readers to think about how things have changed and how things haven't changed all that much. Because the things that we worry about, we worry about women and children's health care. Um, we worry about, um, you know, families. We worry about um, our loved ones. You know, we worry about corrupt politicians. We worry about all kinds of things that, um, that Anna worried about. And, but the, the thing that separates us from Anna is that she really didn't have agency. She couldn't vote. She couldn't go get a job outside the home. She didn't have a lot of the freedoms that we have. And so when we think about, we think things are so quote unquote bad for women right now, I'd like somebody to take a look at what an 18th century woman would have have lived with, you know, would have been normal in her world, that she would never be independent on her own, um, you know, able to take care of herself because you see Anna needed help all along the way. She wasn't, she didn't have her own job where she made enough money to support herself. You know, somebody said, well, what are you going to do if your husband doesn't come home? Well, I guess I'll have to hire someone to farm our, our, you know, our farm and, and give me a share of the crops. And maybe between that and, and what I get for healing, I can get by, but she would never be able to raise herself up to the ranks of somebody who was a wealthy business person or a wealthy doctor, you know, because just, it wasn't in the cards for her. And I would also want people to think about how, how the colonial Americans felt about the break with England and felt about their independence and how it was something that was so incredibly frightening and had never been tried before. And that it's something that we shouldn't take lightly and we should see what people were willing to sacrifice to build something that had never been tried before and, uh, and appreciate the, you know, the sheer bravery and the sacrifices, um, especially as we lead into the summer and we think about Independence Day and the 4th of July, it's kind of nice to think about, you know, where we came from. Absolutely. Well, I've taken up enough of your time. What's the next project that you're working on? Oh, well, I, I actually have two in the works. I'll tell you about my one that's already at the publisher first. I also write nonfiction. And so this one um, is a travel and history book that's called Historic Mills of West Virginia. When my daughter was in grad school and I went out to visit her there, um, I noticed that there were a lot of old um, like water powered mills in different communities. And I had already written a couple of books about my family's mill in Ohio. And I thought, well, I would love to do a driving guide to all these mills so that people could you know, go on road trips or if they're already coming to one part of West Virginia, they could see this off the edge of the map tourist thing that maybe they wouldn't have thought of. And how many mills could there be anyway? Well, it turns out there were 53. So I drove around and I took pictures and I developed a short history of each of the mills and the area in which it's located. And that book turned out to be, let me tell you the story of the history of the state of West Virginia 
from the 1730s to the 1920s, one mill at a time. And it was so much fun. But anyway, I've got it with a publisher now and we're hoping it comes out like later this year, maybe spring of 2023. And I'm also working on a second book in the Ladies of the Revolution series. So not starring Anna because Anna's story is over, but it's going to star another revolutionary lady that we might not have heard of who has done amazing things. And her name is Eliza Wilkinson. And she was, um, she lived in the sea islands of South Carolina outside Charleston. And her plantation was, um, was attacked three times in one day by British soldiers during the Battle of Stono Ferry. And she went to Charleston as a relief worker and was there during the fall of Charleston. And so I want to show what it was like when um, a woman was caught behind enemy lines and the, the 5,000 American soldiers that she thought were there to protect her are all of a sudden all taken prisoner. Wow. Those sound yeah. really great. Well, thank, thank you. you. Thank you for being on the show today. And we look oh, forward to your other books. Well, thank you so much. You can find all of my books on amazon.com, just Tracy Lawson, or um, look for Answering Liberty's Call, and that will lead you to pretty much everything else I've written, too. Thank you again. Uh, thank you, Deidre.